The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Farron from Post. Let me get a second talk. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 11. Today, an Oval Office showdown on live TV. Why a woman playing the flute makes less than a man playing the oboe. And very bad news at the North Pole. Today, around noon, it seemed like suddenly every television in the newsroom If we don't get what we want was playing a scene that was happening live in the Oval Office. I will shut down the government. Okay, fair enough. One thing I think we can agree on is we shouldn't shut down the government over a dispute. And you want to shut it down. You keep talking about it. President Trump openly bickering with top Democrats Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. They were fighting about the border wall and about the possibility that the government will shut down if Congress doesn't figure out a compromise. And that you should not have a Trump shutdown. Uh, you have them at oh, the White oh, House. Did you Trump say Trump? Shutdown. The whole thing was totally surreal. So obviously, Hello. we had to go talk to Josh Dossi. Uh, you just want me to talk normally? Yeah. Our oh, White House you. reporter about it. So, what just happened on television? Sure. So President Trump brought Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer into the Oval Office for a pretty extraordinary meeting. They believed there would be a session to begin hashing out how to keep the government open, uh, whether they'll be funding for a wall, for border security. The president uh, brought the assembled press in and it became a pretty public squabble shouting match that included comments over the midterm elections, over Nancy Pelosi's power that ended with Trump very proudly saying he would shut down the government over the wall. It is a kind of harbinger of what's to come for the next two years because the president likes to do things on camera. He enjoys the performance aspect of it. On several occasions, uh, Pelosi kept saying, let's let the press leave so we can actually discuss. But uh, (laughs) the president was not interested in doing that. I mean, it was actual yelling. I, I was hearing sure. people playing it on their computers around the newsroom. And it was it was very bizarre and a whole other level of combativeness that I don't think that we've quite seen so far. No, we haven't seen that publicly so far. We have seen the president show, frankly, a, a good willingness to have cameras come in for the sausage making of government. I think it's very good for people to see how these fights play out. Now, the president's critics will certainly say he's just bringing them in so he can perform and he can be the one who says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes for a border wall, including shut down the government. He's obviously talking to his base here, but it's rare. Normally in politics, uh, handlers and the PR folks around the politicians want to keep press out of the room for as much as you can. So when you actually see a raw setting like that, it gives you a lens into how it all works. So they went into this meeting trying to find some kind of compromise on the shutdown and on border security. Democrats were offering, you know, I guess a little bit over a billion dollars for border security and Trump and Republicans want five billion. But how or why did that become this huge shouting match? Well, it became this huge shouting match because Trump essentially said he wanted $5 billion for the wall 
or he would shut down the government. Pelosi and Schumer are obviously reticent to give him $5 billion for a wall. Schumer kept saying in the meeting that he didn't even think the wall was necessary. They think maybe some border security is necessary, but not the wall. Pelosi is skeptical of that as well. And the president really put his foot down in the meeting. Uh, To me, covering the president seemed like a negotiating tactic more than anything. I show this big kind of display of braggadocio. And then, you know, later we'll probably come back to something in between. But the president today was pretty firm that if it wasn't five billion, he was shutting down the government. This is obviously very good television and very entertaining to watch. But is there like a bigger reason why why this matters? It certainly matters if they shut down the government. I mean, you'll see key agencies close, some federal services stop, can have deleterious effects on people's lives day in and day out. It also matters to lots of Americans on whether there's a wall or not. I mean, the wall, pretty divisive issue, border security, billions of dollars for it. I think it matters for a whole lot of reasons. Whether today's episode and the ongoing drama actually matters that much, I I don't know. Uh, Sometimes with Trump, these things are ephemeral. Sometimes he could see a political benefit in this and and actually let the government shut down and and make Democrats in January uh, hold on to it. And anyone who tells you they know what he's going to do, I think, uh, is wrong. Do you think that this was an intentional tactic on the part of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to demonstrate a level of combativeness in this meeting. 100%. I mean, they obviously came prepared. They kept calling it the Trump shutdown. You could see the president look taken aback the first time Nancy Pelosi said that. Then they went out to the press outside the White House, stood around reporters and called it a Trump shutdown over and over and over. You could see the hashtag like forming in front of their eyes. You could see Nancy Pelosi on several occasions correct the president and say, no, sir, your facts aren't right. You saw uh, Schumer basically say the president was telling lies in the Oval Office. You saw Schumer uh, mocked the president about bragging about winning Senate seats. You could tell that they were prepared for a public spectacle and and brought their game to play, too, because anytime you meet with Trump in the Oval, you have to be prepared for a whole array of contingency scenarios because any anything can theoretically happen. We're obviously weeks away from Democrats taking over control of the House. Is this what we have to look forward to in a divided Congress? Probably, though, you know, we'll see how much they can actually, you know, agree on. There's some willingness by the president to do infrastructure, a big infrastructure spending package, but the devil will be in the details there. There will be lots of fights over immigration next year. I can imagine will be just as harsh or worse than this one. Uh, there will be, you know, all sorts of battles. Now, the president can be sometimes like a chameleon. So whether he brings this combative posture the next time or, you know, last year there was a meeting in the Oval Office where the president agreed with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and said there didn't need to be a debt ceiling and seemed to really turn his back on Republicans. So whatever he sees in his best interest that day will be where we go. Thank you so much for doing this, Josh. Thanks for having me. So I was asking if it's pronounced flautist or flutist or like what the correct terminology is. I I pronounce it flutist, you know, I mean, or principal flute player or, you know, I'm not really into highfalutin terms. Falutin terms, get it? My dear children, young and old, each character of this tale is represented by an instrument in the orchestra, the bird by a flute. I just was always drawn to to the sound of the flute before I even knew that that's what I was hearing. 
My name is Elizabeth Rowe, and I'm the principal flutist of the Boston Symphony. Jeff, can you just introduce yourself? Tell me who you are, what you do. I'm Jeff Edgers. I'm the national arts reporter here at The Washington Post. Orchestras used to be almost exclusively male. But starting around the 70s, they started having musicians audition from behind screens. The idea was that a performer's gender or race or anything else about them shouldn't influence how their performance was judged. But Jeff reported for The Post that while the number of women in orchestras has gone up, they're still paid less than their male colleagues. And he learned that this summer, the principal flute player of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, a woman named Elizabeth Rowe, she decided to do something about it. She filed a lawsuit in July, Elizabeth Rowe. And strangely enough, as I would find later, she was sort of hoping no one would notice except for the Boston Symphony Orchestra management. She's the most reluctant agitator I've ever met. I think talking about money in general is awkward. <laughs> and, talk, and, and talking about salaries, it's private, it's personal, it's uncomfortable. It's not something that I particularly enjoy doing. And unfortunately, in order to advocate for myself, I have to speak about my compensation relative to other people's. How much money does Elizabeth make? You know, Boston is a is an orchestra where you're paid pretty well. And when you're a principal, one of the stars, you are paid something called overscale, which is more than more than more than pretty well. And so as of July, when she filed this lawsuit, Elizabeth Rowe was earning $236,000 a year. I had done my research when I when I was offered the the position and I did what most musicians do, which is to look to the 990 forms, which are tax forms, which are made public, so I could get a sense of what at least some of my peers in the orchestra were were earning. And that was information that I used to ask for what I thought was appropriate for, for my position in the Boston Symphony. And she asked originally for more than she got, but she wasn't ready to file a lawsuit in 2004. She thought, you know what, I'm coming in here. I'm 29. I'm going to establish myself. And over time, everything will work its way out. And so she was very persistent about always going back and asking for that raise she believed she deserved. And it was just over time, she started growing more and more frustrated by it. It's hard to pinpoint when I actually started to think about this in terms of gender. You know, it's, it's been part of the national conversation for quite some time now. And as I started to think about the big pay disparity with my colleague, the principal oboe player, I started to think about looking for explanations for why this pay gap was so persistent and why I was unable to make any progress. It started to seem to me that to be really kind of the only explanation that, that I could come up with. How much does the principal oboist make? The orchestra has a union that negotiates a base salary. When you come into the orchestra, even if you're 21 years old, that's what you make. It currently is $157,000. John Ferrillo, when he started at the Boston Symphony Orchestra as principal oboist, he negotiated to receive twice that pay. So whatever the base salary is, just multiply it by two. And so currently that's $314,000. So that's like $70,000 more than what Elizabeth Rowe makes. She received a raise in August, which knocked down the gap to $64,000, but still, in her mind, too large of a gap. How do the jobs of a flute player and an oboist compare in terms of the level of difficulty or the level of expertise that are required? So in every orchestra, 
as far as players go, the concert master violinist is on top. That's always going to be the case. But when you start getting down to the flute and the oboe, there is a belief, or I don't even know how, how you describe it. It's not scientific, but people will say, oh, the oboe is generally paid more than the flute. What we sit down and do next to each other every single day is... Is a, it is a partnership, and we—I mean, there, there's a there's a word for it. They call it flowbo, you know. And when it's, it's one of the greatest joys of, of my of my job, it's when the the flute and the oboe are playing together in such a way with such a kind of blend of sound and a matched artistry and sense of phrasing and and, and sense of line that the listener can't really tell who's who, and it just becomes this incredible sound that's greater than either of the two instruments alone and it just becomes its own thing and and that's what we do that's that's what we do day in and day out and that's our value to the organization I think that to justify such an enormous gap in our compensation um, you know I'm, un- I'm uncomfortable talking about this because it's it's my colleagues salary and I am uncomfortable discussing, you know, his compensation in this way because he's been a wonderful colleague and deserves every penny of what he has. And my only point in in, in raising it is that I feel that it is fair for me to be compensated the same. So Elizabeth Rowe, she goes to her bosses at the orchestra year after year and she says, look, I think I need to be paid more. I think I should be paid on par with some of my exceptional male colleagues. And they basically tell her, you're not as valuable as they are because you're a flute player, right? Well, they actually tell her worse, which is, for a while, they just don't tell her anything. I mean, they just don't reply. That's rude. And that's why she said, I've got to file this. How did she come to the conclusion that she needed to file this lawsuit, even if it, you know, put her at risk of becoming a very public person? I think what happened is... After years and years of feeling like, hey, they're just not going to listen to me, she realized that she only had this recourse. And the other piece of it, which is really important, is that Massachusetts passed an equal pay law. And that equal pay law is considered perhaps one of the strongest in the country. Hmm. And she felt like that would be a good way to go about this. So Elizabeth is obviously looking to be paid more. Um, paid on par with her male counterparts. But is she also looking for like a more widespread change within the orchestra itself? I mean, this whole idea of implicit bias, which is the idea that we men and women, when we're in charge of things, we have an unconscious bias and we choose men over women or we react to men and women differently when they're negotiating. What we know is that the industry has struggled with the role of women historically. And that's why the blind audition process was developed in the 50s was to try to help overcome the bias against women as even being members of of orchestras. And I think knowing about an issue of bias isn't enough. We had to actually have a structure in place. We had to have a mechanism, which was the screen. And then that really took us a long way towards addressing that. If there were a consistent structure in place, if there were consistent metrics, if there was a structure to prevent things like 
unconscious or implicit bias. If that was taken seriously, then we wouldn't be here having this conversation. You can look at the representation of women in orchestras and leadership roles, and I did that. I asked, you know, 20 orchestras for all their data from the last 25 years, and we pulled out 78 players among those that we could find the data for, the 78 top players. Only 14 of those are women. Hmm. And it's, you know, the reality is there's something wrong there. And the only argument you can make is, oh, women just aren't as good at playing music. And we know that's ridiculous. When I really sat down and started to look at the numbers in a, in a really serious way, and both in terms of the pay levels throughout the orchestra and also in terms of my accomplishments in a measurable objective way, how many solo appearances I'd had, how many concert series I've been featured on, you know, being a soloist on an international tour, playing concertos for so many different conductors. And I realized that I actually am by far the most often featured principal musician in the orchestra and have been. And I couldn't figure out any other explanation for this. I find this whole story so fascinating just because it's really disappointing to see that this industry has the same like very boring, unsurprising problems with bias against women that every other industry has, that it's not just like making decisions based on the really fine-tuned qualities that that these experts can hear between one cellist and another cellist, that it's like, oh, women are being discriminated against because women are discriminated against everywhere. And then it's much more mundane than who has that special something that makes them a first-chair musician. Yeah, it's very jarring and strange and disturbing to just find out that, hey, you know what? It's like everywhere else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Elizabeth Rowe said this summer when she was at Tanglewood, which is the Boston Symphony Orchestra's summer home, she was a featured soloist and she really said she was terrified or very, very emotional about getting up there because it was this moment where she realized as she was going to perform this solo that people in the audience she thought were going to think, oh, that's the woman who wants all that money. I absolutely want to acknowledge that I am in a privileged position compared to many people in this country. And I've struggled with with that and in advocating for myself because of precisely that. And what it comes down to for me is is just about it's about fairness. And I think that I'm in a privileged position to be able to to speak out. And that privilege allows me to, to advocate for fairness and equality in a way that a lot of women can't who are in jobs that don't allow them to and don't have the kind of security that I have. So I recognize my privilege, but I also recognize that that allows me to raise this issue in a way that I sincerely hope will help other people and other women in, in similar situations who don't have the kind of support and ability to speak out that I have. Elizabeth Rowe and the Boston Symphony Orchestra are entering mediation later this week. And before we go, one more thing. Environment reporter Chris Mooney takes us to the dire situation in the Arctic. What you're hearing are the collisions as a Canadian research icebreaker was cutting through Arctic sea ice in the Northwest Passage in the summer of 2017. 
I was on the journey, and the crew explained to me that they weren't cutting through older ice. They were cutting through young ice. I kept asking them, where's the old ice? Is there any? And they said, nope, not here, not here. The annual Arctic report card from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration contained a particularly striking statistic this year, which is that the very oldest ice, the thickest ice floating on the Arctic Ocean, that lends a lot of the stability that the whole ice pack atop the Arctic Ocean needs, has seen a 95% decline in just over three decades. One of the key principles of the Arctic ice covering the ocean is that it reflects sunlight away. As you start to have ice over that ocean that's all young, that's all one year old, then you get to the position where you could have a major melt in the summer and lose, you know, large percentages or maybe even at some point in the coming decades, all of it. It really raises concerns about what the future state of the Arctic ice pack is going to be because the oldest ice is the most stable and long-lasting, some semblance at least, of permanence. And once you lose the age and you have an Arctic whose ice pack is all young, then you fear that you could melt most or all of it in a future summer and you would have a dark ocean that could warm up further and heat the whole planet and also inhibit future growth of ice. That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review or share a tweet with hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.